Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from the Find Your Great Work interview series. Here's your host, MBS. So I am here today with Octavius Black. Octavius uh, is the founder of, a co-founder of The Mind Gym, one of the flourishing, most interesting training companies in the world. Now, I have known Octavius for uh, close to 10 years now because we work together. But what's been really interesting is, is watching Octavius and The Mind Gym flourish since uh, 2000, which is when the, the company took off. In those seven or eight years, They've uh, trained close to half a million people. They've worked in 30 countries with pretty much every one of the biggest com- companies you've heard of. And they're really revolutionizing the way training is done. They, they do it in 90-minute uh, blocks with a, a series of sort of focused modules. So people can sort of create the ideal training program, almost like a really cool Lego set. So I'm really excited to hear um, both Octavius's great work story, but also the insights he's got from great work from being exposed to so many organizations and, and the challenges they're facing in doing their own great work. So, Octavius, welcome. Michael, thank you very much indeed. And, Octavius, is there anything else I should add you, you'd like to add to that introduction? Anything I missed about you? You certainly haven't missed anything, but I thought it might be useful to start with the story about how the Mind Gym began, because, in a sense, that's our journey towards great work. That would be perfect. We it started over a, a dinner, a dinner admittedly fueled a little bit by alcohol, to prompt our thinking about how society has changed over the years. And our hypothesis at that stage was that the 80s had been the decade of the body, of Jane Fonda and her workouts, the first time when vegetarianism became mainstream, uh, when people took up jogging, when gyms became a normal part of, of people's daily lives. And we thought, well, if the 80s was the decade of the body, what was the 90s? And we looked there and we looked and we saw feng shui and we saw yoga. And it was the first decade where in the United States more people went to alternative medicine than to conventional medicine. So we thought, well, maybe this is the decade of the soul, the spirit. So we thought, well, what would the next decade be? And kind of mind, body, soul is an obvious trinity. Mm-hmm. So we came up with the idea it would be the decade of the mind. Now, fantastically satisfied with this wonderful conclusion <laughs> at this stage, we were sucking, sipping into coffee and maybe something stronger. We, were, um, we then thought, what on earth do we do with this thought? And we thought, what would happen if you had a mind gym? What would it do? How would it work? And we got very excited about the idea of people being able to come and exercise their minds, if you like, of an evening or at the weekend, and um, learning about practical tools and techniques they can take away and apply and use immediately. And we then went to gyms to try and convince them to, to do this. And they were not remotely interested. We got turned down time after time after time. So, so you're and, literally pitching the idea to, to physical gyms where people would physically work out and then go and have a think about something. Exactly that. They do kickboxing and then they do stress busters. Or they do pilates and when they come and do conflict detox. And the idea they'd come along and have their own mental workouts, which we thought was um, really fun. But, but the gyms did not. <laughs> Right. And so on our journey to great work, and we then since thought about taking it to the corporate world, which is you and I used to work in, and so this my co-founder here, Seb Bailey, um, we thought this was um, an area that could benefit from helping individuals prosper by allowing them to, to, to think more effectively. And so what was it about that, shout that the story from Mind Gym, which, you know, having got that insight about let's take it to the corporate world, has, you know, grown and flourished? Um, in, in that arc of the of Mind Gym, what's the great work story for you here? I mean, what was the challenge for you in taking this on? Well, I, what I loved about it initially was I just thought the idea was something 
that's compelled me. I thought, ah, great, to be able to work out my mind and use it more effectively and get more from it. And then I looked at the world of learning and development, and I thought it's slightly ironic, but it seems to be the world of learning and development seems to be the world of business that's learned the least, that's changed the least in the last 10, 20 years. It's still running the same sort of courses on the same sort of subjects and without any demonstrable results. So what we did was to get to a great place, if you like, was to look at the opposite of everything that was going on in this market and see whether we could do that. So there's an assumption that you couldn't learn and the, the shortest learning unit was a day. So we made our longest learning unit 90 minutes. There was an assumption that you ought to have a fixed set of objectives that everyone needs to know by the end. We put in way more than anybody could take in in 90 minutes. But the idea was each person would take the two or three things they liked most. Right. There was an assumption that you needed to look very corporate. And so this is why the organization needs you to do this. We turned on its head and made it look very, very personal and all about appealing to employee self-interest. And therefore, what excited me was the whole area of how to challenge an orthodoxy. Right. To challenge what I saw as a slightly tired and traditional market with some great players in it for sure, but where 10 years ago it had not necessarily changed an awful lot. And I'm glad to say since it has changed an enormous amount and see what we could do to shake things up and to give people better value. Now, one of the uh, previous people I've talked to in this uh, Great Work interview series defined uh, great work as sort of sweaty palm moments. You could almost tell the importance of the work by just how sort of you know, that degree of anxiety you felt, the degree of sweatiness in your palms. So what, what was making your palms sweaty around this? Um, I remember we, we kept losing money, which is always a slightly sweaty <laughs> palm moment, especially when it's your own money. Right. And I remember my accountant saying to us, how much longer are you willing to do this before you realize it's not going to work? I was like, well, that's why you're an accountant and I'm an entrepreneur. It is going to work. Wait and see. Right. Uh, and I think that an aha moment for me, when I was talking to the, the head of learning at Goldman Sachs at that time, and I said to him, I said, well, why aren't more people buying this stuff? And he said, Octavius, you don't really get it, do you? And I'm like, well, not, not sure I do. He said, if 10% of what you say is true, it goes against 90% of what everyone you're selling to has assumed for the last 20 years. And therefore, in a sense, the nature of pioneering means it's going to be far harder to change a market than it is to simply turn up an existing market and, and adapt from that. And I think that was when we really feel this is great work. Yeah. We are taking on the old assumptions, the sibboleths of uh, old-fashioned T&D and saying this can be done differently and it should be done differently and we will show how it can be done differently. And that was a very, very exciting and still is. You know, that's, um, I think that's one of the key insights around great work, which is one of the measures about whether you are taking on great work is whether you're pissing a few people off. Mm. You know, if everybody is happy, then you're probably not doing great work. Great work is in itself inherently countercultural. Yes. Now, that can be countercultural within the organization in which you work. That's one of the reasons why it can be a challenge to do great work. And what you're pointing to is what MindGem has offered is something that's countercultural or was countercultural to the way training was done. Yes. So, you know, even if I'm a training professional, I'm like, well, I want to hire you, but you're now making every decision I've made in the past look bad. I think you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, it's kind of like whoever the first person was to try and sell network PCs to a world of mainframes must have found that really difficult with lots of chief technology officers going, yeah, yeah, that makes great sense. But actually thinking, I don't want to do that. That's too different from what I know. I might get it wrong. Got it. And I think that sense of great work means you are unpopular. And there's that old line in the back of the uh, pioneers full of arrows. And it's it's right. a painful journey, yeah. but it's still the right journey to do. And I think when you're doing great work, you'll know you're doing the right thing. 
And you know it because people who you respect and trust mm-hmm. come up to you and say, I'm really glad you're doing this. This is a good thing. So as well as that sort of feedback from people you know and trust and giving you that sort of support, what was it that, that sustained you through that journey? Because from the way you tell it, those, those early times you were like knocked back, you were losing money, you were not getting that sort of you know, immediate embrace that you might have been hoping for. How, how, do you, how did you personally manage that process? Well, I was very lucky to have a fantastic business partner, and the two of us worked really closely together throughout. And I remember Dark November, which was the first November we were just about in business, losing money uh, and losing more and more, and sales were actually declining month on month. Uh, and I was feeling a bit low about this. And um, my business partner said, tell me five things you actually like about management. Tell me five good things. And so I rattled off five, and then I rattled off another five, and then there were another five. And he said, hey, stop. There's loads you love about this. I'm not making any money, but we'll get that. And it's that sense of looking after each other, focusing on the good things, and remembering what the purpose is. And we, we, the first thing I wrote down before we started anything was our mission which is to help people use their minds more effectively so they get more out of life and give more to others. That is inviolable. Everything else is up for grabs, but that remains, and that's a mission that I'm happy to leap out of bed for every morning. Cool. You know, I mean, two things that are brilliant about that, Octavius. One is um, a, sense of, a sense of what's the impact I'm going to have? Why am I, why am I committed to this? So that you're, you're being pulled forward by that, that, that sense of vision or impact that you might have. The second thing is really important, which is... Um, you know, great work is inherently not a solo activity. It's like it's, if you can measure it by the number of people you annoy and, and, and are, are resisting you, that's one measure. But the other is if you are doing it all by yourself, it's not great work. You actually need people around you. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it sounds like that partnership with Seb was part of the, the, the measure of success around this is potentially great work for us. I think that's one element. You're absolutely right. And to build on that point, Michael, because I totally agree with you, this is this great work as a, as a team thing. You mentioned uh, that we've written a couple of books. What is, you may not know is that the, our names are not on the books. Mm-hmm. We deliberately put our names at the back, in the, along with everybody else who's been part of the Mind Gym project. Right. And I think that, that was a fair and accurate reflection of, of who should take the credit, because we've all been part of this. The team here, the coaches who deliver our workouts, the clients who are pioneering after trial us, the academics who supported us throughout this journey. Right. So it's very much a collaborative thing. And I think the more we can bring others along in this journey to, to help people use their minds more effectively, that's a great place to be. So as you um, peek into the various organizations around the world where you've worked, um, what do you see as potentially some of the barriers to organizations doing more great work? I mean, what's getting in the way? I'm, and again, I think a lot of this is about individuals. And I guess my our perspective is all about helping individuals flourish. Mm-hmm. And therefore, my message goes out to individuals to say, what is it that you want to be doing? What is it that we, what would great work look like? And go and do it. And it's amazing how the other stuff you think you have to do just disappears and no one notices. I remember talking to a colleague here who was heading up our sales team at the time. She's since, since left us to start a family. Um, and she said, oh, I'm, Octavius, I'm really enjoying it here, but I'm very frustrated. I'm doing all this stuff that I don't want to do every day. Yeah. Uh, and it's getting me down. I said, well, write down all the things you would like to be doing. Let's write a list of all the things. You, if had, all your time is taken away, let's write down a list of all the things you'd ideally like to be doing. And right. she wrote down this list. And it was full of exciting things. And I said, go do it. <laughs> and she said, well, what happens to the other stuff? I said, I don't know. Let's find out. Let's see, see what does happen. Right. And, of course, nothing did happen. Some people picked up a few bits, which was great because less senior members of the team managed to have a chance to try stuff they hadn't done before. And the other stuff just disappeared and no one noticed. 
and she was energized and was doing great work. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I, uh, you know, I do some individual one-to-one coaching with people, and I I call that interaction the uh, the cappuccino moment. It happens at the start of almost every coaching conversation where <laughs> we sit down and. Um, and I'm like, so what do you want to do? And they're like, well, I really want to do this, 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 and this. And I'm like, you know what? You should do that. And they're like, you are, you are fantastic. You are a brilliant coach. And part of it is <laughs> That's just, so uh, good. part of it is just um, uh, realizing, giving people permission that they are able to do what they want to do. You know, Peter Block, who's a, a writer I have a lot of respect and time for, talks about the work we do is giving people the responsibility for their own freedom. Yes. And that is about yes. being willing to make, to be recognized that they are responsible for the choices they are making. That's so true. That is absolutely on the money. Yeah. And, and, you know, I call it that cappuccino moment because it is the easy part of coaching. You're just blowing the froth off the first piece. <laughs> and later on, you get into the sort of the, the real, the deeper dynamics about what might be going on. But so much of this is for people to go, actually, you know, you have, you, you are making up the rules about what you can and can't do. Yes. So change the rules. Change the rules. I think I think that's so true. I think it's up to each of us because it's really easy to get caught up in the good work, and I certainly know I do it. And it's then pausing and saying, "Hang on, I don't want to be doing this. This isn't what I came on on, on this earth to do. Right. Let me find a way of, of giving someone else the chance to do it, or just ditching it and go off and do the stuff that I really care about." Yeah, you know, the the challenge is that um, actually, in the way organisations are structured today, in the way technology works in our organisations today. There is now an endless amount of good work. You could be doing good work for the rest of your life, even if you never slept again. Mm-hmm. So until the, the only way you get more access to great work is by be, being willing to say no to good work. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult, right? Because good work keeps us busy, and if we're busy, we feel you know, valuable and important, and uh, it's what our organizations want us to do and tell us to do. So part of the challenge is getting clear about what's the good work you're willing to say no to. Yes, I think that's right. I think the other challenge is knowing what great work would look like. Yeah. And I think if we understand individually what our own kind of great work would look like and then go off and do it, our organizations will probably be absolutely delighted. We'll start a new distribution channel. We'll uh, create a new kind of product. We'll have a new kind of marketing campaign that no one had thought of before. And they'll go, Michael, you're a genius. Why didn't you do that before? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, there's a lot in organizations that – there are a lot of deep assumptions about organizational life that we have to follow these rules. We have to do what we're told. Mm-hmm. Actually, most managers are waiting for their teams to come and manage them. Right. I mean, the irony of management training is 99% of management training is about how to manage downwards. Right. But actually, it should be almost the other way around, exactly. or at least 50-50. Yeah. And I think there's a myth that organizational life demands that we do good work. Organizational life is set up to allow people to do good work, yes. and, and it requires individuals to make the extra effort to flourish and do great work. Right. You know, um, Peter Block's latest book called Community, fantastic read. He says that the unit of change is small groups. Mm. Um, and and if you are sitting in an organization waiting for the organization to declare, you know, it's time for us to do great work, that won't happen. Yeah. And if as an individual you think it's only up to me to do great work, that is um, that is almost an overwhelming challenge. Mm-hmm. But if you can find the people on your team or in your group or people with collective interest to say, what are we going to do that's great work here, that's the unit of change in an organization. Yes. I think, that's, I think that's absolutely right. And then often it's an individual to gather that group together. Indeed. Indeed. Somebody needs to say, you know, what's going to be different today? Yes. Time to stop doing what I did yesterday. 
Yeah, and I had this mad idea in the shower this morning. What do you think about it, guys? Do you, yeah. We can go for it. Exactly. Octavia, this has been fantastic. I'm going to ask you in one sec how they, people can find out more about the Mind Gym. You know, ask you to tell you, tell people quickly about your books and your, and your website. But is there a final comment you'd like to make on the challenge to do more great work in organizations? I think it's fantastic for you you're doing here, Michael, to encourage people to do more great work. And I think it is about each of us looking to see what it is that excites us. And that sense of, there's a thing called the catastrophic fantasy. And this takes place when we think about what we would like to be doing, and we even planned a bit. And then we imagine the worst possible scenario of doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I was actually on a radio interview the other day to call him. And this guy was saying, he'd, um, he was a banker, but he really wanted to set up a restaurant. And he'd actually found a venue for the restaurant. Um, but all his friends and his family said, goodness sake, don't give up banking. It's a, it's a great profession. You mustn't do it. And what he, I said, why don't you? And he said, well, I'm terrified that it'll go wrong and I'll lose my money and my friends won't talk with me and then I'll, they won't have a home to live in and my wife will leave me and then I'll have to play the banjo yeah. on the street. And no, 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 no. That's right. I'll start drinking and I'll become an alcoholic and I'm dead in the next two years. Exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. And what he'd done is he created a catastrophic fantasy. Yeah. The, not only the worst possible, but actually worse than the most possible scenario. which we often do to frighten ourselves off trying something new Mm -hmm. and to take us back to the normal run of the mill of doing what we were doing before. And we call this um, crossing the Rubicon, that element, that river that marked the boundary of the Roman Empire, where once you crossed it, you were fighting Rome. There was no alternative. That was was the moment of a battle, and there was no going back. And what our challenge is mentally is to spot when we're creating catastrophic fantasies and reduce them, dismiss them, Mm-hmm. and then cross the Rubicon and do the new thing, do the great work. So I think it's in our minds that those barriers exist, and therefore it's in our minds that we can remove those barriers and cross them. Perfect. I love that. Um, it just reminds me of when I, when I wrote my first book, one of the, one of the galvanizing questions I, that just came to me one day was, what wouldn't I do for this to be successful? Mm. And actually that, that shifted. The, it just opened up new possibilities around what it means to cross the Rubicon to be truly committed to its success. Yes. So, okay, this has been great talking to you. How can people find out about The Mind Gym? Well, the best place is on the website, which is themindgym.com, uh, and where you can find lots about us. We also have offices in London and New York, and um, our telephone numbers are available on the website there. Perfect. Octavius, thanks so much again. Michael, a pleasure to talk with you. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.